welcome guys to another live episode. So today's episode is going to be an interesting one. We're going to be doing case studies. We're actually going to be studying successful people. We're going to be studying. And this, this story, you've pretty much, you've probably heard about it. Imagine you were born in the 1840s. You were born in 1846. You were born in 1849. Now I want you to take a listen to this, right? Imagine you were born in that time and you have to, the amount of work that is, that is needed to make a single dollar, the menial labor, you work in the fields, you work in whatever it is that you're doing to be able to provide an income living for yourself and your family and then all of a sudden news comes to you it goes hey jimmy hey timmy in california did you know that there was a mine with gold there's gold there's so much gold that everybody in um, everybody there's more gold than the population of california we need to go dig for that gold now just think about it from that perspective of you imagine someone told you that what would you do you're gonna be like absolutely yes yes let's go you would leave everything tell your wife tell your kids tell your family hey listen we got to go to california california is where it's at that's where the dream is that's where the vision is and we need to go get some gold okay so today's study is going to be interesting so we're going to be talking about someone samuel brennan most of you might not know who samuel brennan is but let me give you guys a little feel of the story so back in 1848 in 1848 first Gold was was discovered, and I believe the man's name where you know where the gold was discovered was I think it was John Sitwell. John Sitwell, I believe that was that was where it was. It's John Sitwell, if I'm not mistaken. So no, it was John Stutter. John Sutter. So John Stutter, I believe. Sitwell Stutter. He basically had a uh, he was digging folk. He was trying to plant something, and then he ended up finding out that he had gold in his well. Right? He had they had, he had so much gold. He had more gold. Then he knew what to do with it. it. Ended up happening. It ended up going bankrupt because of you know what everyone would call the California Gold Rush, which is what we're going to be talking about. So we're going to be talking about the California Gold Rush, and we're going to be looking at little, basically, best way to put it, few examples and a few, um, lack of a better term, case studies and, and use cases of how you can apply things from the California Gold Rush into your current business. So if it's your first time, just do my favor, hit the like button and just go ahead and do my favor, subscribe. Um, obviously, if you get any feedback from this chat with this video, if at some point you believe this video is of value to you, feel free to share it with your friends and family if you believe this is going to be of any value to them. But let's go ahead and talk about, let's go and dive in really quickly into Samuel Brunner, right? So Samuel Brunner, basically, he started out in 18, so in 1846, he's 27-year-old, he left New York City basically going to Brooklyn, right? It was basically doing it for the church. Now, Brennan, when he came to Brooklyn, ended up finding out when he came to Brooklyn, he came to um, not Brooklyn, he came to California. He came in around 1846, 1847. He opened a store in a uh, opened a store in John Sutter's Fort. OK, now, a few months later, after he opened a store, rumors circulated that gold had been found nearby at Coloma. So Coloma and Italy, uh, basically, Brennan headed to the mines to see for himself. He learned there was more gold than all the people in California could take out in 50 years. I want you to just take into perspective. Think about this. Imagine I just told you that in your neighbors, in, in, in two, three blocks down the road, there is so much more gold than you and anyone in your family, your entire generation could take out for the next 50 years. Imagine how much of an impact that's going to make to you and imagine what your next decision is going to be, right? That, that to me is kind of what's, what's crazy there. So he pretty much got to a point in which that's what he found out was like, hey, you know what? There's so much gold in here in this nearby town. And what do you think he did? He went to go check it out for himself, right? So he went to go check it out for himself. So he he basically, he learned that there was more gold than any people in California could take in out 50 years. Brandon made plans for a second store. Then he packed some of the precious metals in a, in a bottle and traveled 100 miles back to San Francisco as he stepped off the ferry. Now I want you guys to take a listen to this. This is what he did. As he stepped off the ferry, Brandon swung his hat, waved the bottle, and shouted, gold, 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 gold from the American River. 
by middle of June, three quarters of the middle male population had left town for the mines. So think about what he did. I want you guys to think about it. So if you case you if you use cases, we're gonna talk about it. So the first thing he did was he took the gold. He didn't he didn't take the gold and hoard the gold. Okay, so he did not take the gold and hoard the gold. What is the first thing he did? He took the gold. When he took the gold, he went, he got everybody's attention, basically went to a platform, kind of think about it like advertising, and then said, gold, gold, gold. All right. And think about it, if you're someone in there, you're in town square, wherever it's at, and someone just comes and starts screaming, gold, 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 gold. You're going to be like, where's the gold? Where's the gold? How can I go get the gold? That's the exact same thing that he did was he understood the opportunity, but he didn't see the opportunity of, oh, let's go dig for gold. Because I want you to think from a perspective, if somebody comes to you and say, here's, I know where we can find gold and you can actually find gold there. And they didn't keep it for themselves. You will pay any single dollar and any single dime this person asks of you because you got to think about it from a perspective of like they're not holding the money for themselves they're willing to share in the wealth it instantly builds trust but also you got to think about it from a perspective of not only does it build trust is whatever they tell you to do you will pretty much do it so that's kind of the same principle and the same concept there which you guys are thinking of taking taking into account as to you know samuel brennan right so he basically goes in town square, waves his hat, brings out the pieces of gold. And that's where it comes in as to, you know, this is the reason why this is a case study is you got to look at it from a perspective of you. I want you to look at it from a perspective of people want to see proof of whatever it is that you're telling them about. If you're telling them that you, your business can deliver them so and so results, people need to be able to see proof. Now, the first key point here we're going to relate and talk about as far as the Brennan story was he had proof, proof of what people could accomplish if they followed his system. He had proof. He basically came out and said, hey, this and this is proof of the fact that if you guys come to follow me, I can lead you to gold, right? So as we're going to end up finding out later, it was about 300,000 people, more than 300,000 people actually left the neighboring states and also parts of outside the country to come to California. And the reason why they came to California was because of what Brandon discovered, because Brandon discovered gold. So the first key thing that you got to understand is you have to have the ability, case study is, and this is for business owners. If you're a business owner, you're watching this. If you are someone who is in whatever space, shape, or form, whatever it is that you're doing, and you either want to monetize attention or whatever it is, you got to come to a perspective that you must first be able to get attention. That's the most important thing is the ability to get attention is very important. If you don't have the ability to get attention then almost whatever it is that you want to do is not going to work so you got to have first of all have the ability to get attention so as we kind of dive a little deeper here so he basically had the uh, ability to get attention so he knew how to get attention and not only did he just know how to get attention he knew how to get other people to basically think about it if if you're giving up your livelihood to go across state lines to a neighboring state or across you know the country to a state that's you know four or five thousand miles away just because of a hope and dream so the first thing he understood is this is and this is a message for salespeople: is if you're in sales you got to come from a perspective of you do not sell there's a saying that you do not sell the plane ticket you sell the vacation now think about it from a perspective of when people people were not digging for gold i want you to think about it from a perspective of imagine someone tells you oh my god there's gold here there's gold in this people don't go there thinking digging for gold right because you got to understand we're human beings and we all we all have lives we all have things that we're basically taking out taking advantage of we all have things that basically we see as priorities we all have things that we're basically focusing on we all have things that are basically in our way shape or form has a priority to us and 
they, the reason why I want to say it is this is if if is think about it from a census too. If whenever you get paid, you know, everyone has a paycheck. You say you get paid a month, once a month, twice a week, whatever time. You get paid, let's say you get paid four grand, right? This is what your paycheck is, right? What is the first thing most people do with the four grand? They take the four grand, they pay rent, let's say rent was two thousand, they pay feed, which is a thousand, and they pay whatever it is, bills with a thousand and boom, the four grand is gone, which makes you kind of look at it from a perspective of look at it from a perspective of it's not about the money. Okay. It's not about the money. That's not the reason why most people do it. It's, it's what the money can help them achieve. Right. Most people who have a job is because you got to think about it is if, if society did not require people to work and they said, Hey, you're not required to work and you could just get a paycheck. Then there's no reason for people to work. Right. Because if, if you can just get paid to work, then there's no reason to work. The reason why people work is because they understand that they can get the money, but when they get the money, they understand the use cases of it. Right. So it's not about the money. It's what the money can do for them. The same thing. It's not about the gold. It's what the gold can do for them. Right. So that's kind of the way you got to translate it because some people think about it. It's like, hey, if I'm able to get 20 ounces of gold, if I get 20 ounces of gold, which you guys got to think about it. 20 ounces, we're going to look at how much gold we're selling for, which is interesting. I want to share share with you the stats here as to um, back in 18, in 18, let me see if I, yep, that's the one. That's the number I was looking for here. So back in 1847, 1849, the average cost of gold, so gold was about 0 0.67 cents an ounce, if I'm not mistaken. So it was about, gold was worth, no, my bad, 20.67 cents per ounce in 1849. Okay, so it was worth 20.67 cents per ounce in 1849, right, which to, which back then 20.67 cents was a lot of money now if we go ahead and say you know what let's go ahead and do the math and actually go ahead and convert this in a census to let's look at it from a perspective of let's look at the conversion if 20.67 cents if you convert that 1849 to the current year of 2023 at the current inflation rate you're looking at 820 dollars so the average ounce so one ounce of gold was equivalent to $820. So think about this. One ounce of gold was equal to $820. So think about how think about it that way. I want you to think about it from a perspective of another thing I want you to think about it from a perspective of how much was the average cost of living in 1849, right? So think about it even the census to the average cost of living in 1849 was nothing more than I think it was like 30 bucks. So the average cost of living in 1849 was um where's the uh where's the what I'm looking for here it was about 12 point it, it was about 12 point um um let me see let me let me see what was the average wage this is average cost of living in 1849 so the average cost of 18 living in 1849 this is an interesting stats act as well and i actually want to one actually look look this up so if we look at this here if we look at the data i kind of let me share this share, share this this um this chart with you guys here so it's when i granted much of the day-to-day -day living expenses back in the in that time period was done on the barter system and not much money changed hands but according to history blazer the minimum wage in 1849 in utah was about $2.50 a day and that's about zero point that's today that's about zero point uh three one two five an hour for an eight hour day so basically people made two dollars and fifty cents a day now it's 40 hours they would make about 12 days six hours a week but for the sake of consistency less than 40 hours they would make by using these figures they basically made about 650 bucks a year so if they made about 650 bucks a year um so if you if you do the math fifty dollars an emergency that's if if, if you live in a six hundred fifty dollars a year then you also got to look at it from a perspective of if it's six hundred fifty dollars a year then you know average house was probably you know i'm curious of the average house in uh sold for how much in uh 1849 if you look at it from the, the perspective of the average house um let me see here that's not prices and wages it, it's not it's not it's not showing it as to the property value so i'm not able to get that number 
the property value in 1849. That's something I'm, I'm very curious of. The property value in 1849. Not, that's not, it's not, uh, it's just giving me a conversion here. So, uh, but it's probably about 30 to 40, maybe 30 bucks a month. I would guess would be about roughly about what it would cost per for a mortgage was maybe 30 bucks a month because you got to think about it people were making about two dollars and fifty cents a day right so it's definitely not costing a few hundred so may, let's say if 26 dollars is equivalent to 800 dollars right now so maybe 28 29 maybe even 30 dollars was the average cost of rent per month right so imagine if one ounce of gold would pay your rent right so if you if you're able to carry a thousand ounces of gold you're rich right but what was interesting was what well, this is where it gets even better was gold you would think that you know people like oh my god gold was worth this much people like oh my god gold i can i can spend this much on gold i can go ahead and purchase gold but what was interesting was it wasn't the people that were digging for gold that became the millionaires back in california right it was actually samuel brennan himself that became a millionaire samuel brennan himself became a millionaire because if we continue to look at this data here as to how much he was selling stuff for samuel brennan Brandon didn't actually dig for gold, but gold swelled his investments to a fortune. His store made enormous profits by selling it as much as $5,000, which is equivalent to $120,000. This is 2005 data. So if you actually factor in inflation, it's probably maybe $148,000, $149,000 in current time in goods per day to miners. So think about this. He was making back then. So think about it, the average cost of rent was about 50 bucks, but this man was selling goods worth five grand a day okay so imagine this the average rent was eight hundred dollars back then but he's making 120 to 150 grand a day selling goods to miners so people go in there digging for gold but he wasn't digging for gold he was basically in a position in which he was basically selling the opportunity and selling the the, the, the tools and resources to get it but then I kind of started doing some more digging. I'm like, okay, so if he's selling for gold, how was he able to sell that much, right? What was the what was the what was the reason why people would even pay him, you know, 120 grand, 120 grand on a um on a daily basis? And I kind of went ahead and started digging one, and I found out if you look actually do some research and you find into some gold rush prices, which is what's interesting is you look into some gold rush prices. He was basically selling mostly goods, selling them the food they needed, beef, butter, cheese, coffee, um, eggs, floor, and then he was selling them boots. But then think about this. you One thing you needed for gold was shovel. So one of the most expensive things, which was on the price range, was basically shovel. So shovel was selling for $36. So think about this. The shovel was selling for more money than most people paid for their rent, but most people willing to pay for the shovel because they know all I need is two ounces of gold and I paid back the money for the shovel. So they go get the two ounces of gold and they're like, oh, three ounces or four ounces. And they made the 36 bucks back. So it was a well worthwhile investment for them for the most part to spend 36 bucks. But if we actually do the math and convert, $36 in current in, in today's time, if we go ahead and look at this and we say 36, what is $36 in today's time? So $36 in today's time is equivalent to $1,429 was what people were paying for a shovel. Okay, think about this. People were paying $1,400 for a shovel. Now, that's another case study we're going to talk about is, one, he was able to get attention. Attention is key. But the most important thing he was able to understand, that, that another thing helped him was, is the value 
of the product that he was selling, right? Basically, the perceived likelihood that people could, just by purchasing his product, the perceived likelihood that they'll be able to achieve or realize whatever goal. So if you're struggling at a point in which you, let's say you're charging, because think about it, people, if people are willing to pay $1,429 equivalent, if we look at it from $36 back at $1,849, but we're just basically prorating and calculating it, factoring inflation to be $1,400 right now. If someone is willing to pay $1,429 for a shovel because of the likelihood that they believe if they use the shovel, they'll be able to use it to the gold, they will happily pay for it. But then you're struggling to sell your product that's an equivalent right now of maybe 12 to 15 or 20 or 50 or 100 or $250. It's not because of there is a problem with the person. It's not a problem with the customer because the customer is not. The, the thing is, most people think like I have cheap customers, but you don't have cheap customers. There's no such thing as a cheap customer because somebody might spend $20 with you here today and go buy a Louis Vuitton bag for $400, right? Someone might be struggling and say, you know what? I don't want to pay you, you know, 15 bucks for your product and then they go spend $300 on a dinner. Somebody might be saying, you know, I'm not willing to do this, but then they go spend thousands of dollars somewhere else. So it's not the concept. The concept of things is not the matter of like, oh, you know, your customers are cheap because your customers aren't cheap. They just don't see the value in purchasing your product. Because if someone's willing to pay $1,429 for a shovel, just on the likelihood they can be able to go ahead and dig for gold, which is equivalent back in 1849. Okay. Where basically the minimum wage was was two dollars and fifty cents a day, which was zero point zero one three point something per hour. But people were willing to actually shell out the money. Then you got to think about it from this perspective. This is the holistic view I want to think about. It is what you're selling. You got to look at it from a customer's perspective. My customer does not see that my product is valuable enough for what I charge. Right. So you got to find a way. And it's not even that the product's not valuable. It's what they believe the outcome of the product that you you're receiving. Like for instance, I got a call from. Uh, we're, we're currently talking, talking if you, you know, if we are, we're not going to have a partnership together. But he was talking, he's like, yeah, I was willing to, one of the softwares was a conversational AI. And he was like, yeah, he was, you know, he was willing to pay two, three, four, five grand for this conversational AI software because he believed the likelihood of this software helping him reach to realize the goal is insane. And when I spoke to a few people in the company, they had people who were willing to pay a hundred grand a month just based off of the fact that they believed that the likelihood that they could be able to use this product to achieve and make millions, right? So it's got to understand the same, the same concept people need to see your when they purchase from you they need to say it shouldn't be like a position of like oh my god i'm spending this money but they should be like thank you because i know that just by me purchasing this product i'll be able to achieve and realize the goal so you gotta understand first thing is you gotta be able to get attention recognize the opportunity get attention number two is you need to understand your product value and perception in the customer because there's a reason why if me and you go, let's say we go to a regular restaurant, right? We go to a regular, let's say we go to mom and pop or a taco shop or a, a what do they call it? A food truck, right? A food truck will sell a taco to you for $2.50, right? But then you take, you go to a high-end taco luxurious restaurant and they'll sell you that same taco for 30 or 40 bucks, right? So one, they understood is the taco. The only difference between the taco is not that it tastes better. It just changed location. Right, it just changed location. So you gotta think about it. It's location is key. Location is key. So the first thing we should think about it is location is key as far as influencing the price value of your product. So if I'm selling a product that's two dollars and fifty cents and it's not for, because you gotta think about it, a shovel in New York was not selling for thirty six bucks. A shovel in New York was probably selling for like fifteen cents or a cent. 
but it was selling for $36 in, in California because of the lo location and proximity because people knew that there was a scarcity of shovel because everybody wanted shovels. That's one. And then two, they also understood the fact that if I get the shovel now, that's because remember, the fort in which the shovel was founded on where, where uh, Sam Brennan put his store was pretty much right next door to the guy that discovered the uh, uh, pretty close to where the gold was discovered. So if you think about it from that perspective of like, okay, there's proximity in the sense as to I am super close to you know wherever it is that i'm going to be digging for gold then it absolutely makes more sense to that actually justifies paying for it that's the reason why you can have a taco a taco food truck selling for two dollars and fifty cents but i some taco at a high-end restaurant selling for 40 to 60 dollars so you kind of got to look at it from that perspective of your life in the sense to even even look at it from a personal life if you're in a position in which you're not being valued in wherever it is that you're going wherever you are in your relationship, in your life, wherever it is your value. It's not the fact that there was a problem with the person. It's a problem with the location, right? So half the time, you just have to change locations and be in a position where you will be more valued. Sometimes that's just all it takes is just moving location. And then when just by you switching locations, you'll be able to be in a position in which your value will be perceived, right? So the shovel, he just came, set up store in California, and boom, instantly his prices went up, right? So you got to understand is location is also key. But another few things that you got that I want to kind of touch on, which is also very, very, very interesting was so samuel brennan he had something which was which most people don't really pay attention to but he had the ability to recognize he had the ability to recognize that they are basically there is the opportunity and then there is helping people to get the opportunity there was a goal that there's a there's a quote by napoleon hill and i believe napoleon made this quote let me see if i can find it that you will get whatever you want in life if you help other people get what they want in life let me see is a napoleon hill quote um I think it's Bonaparte. No, I think it's Hill. Quote of you will get whatever you want in life. Um, whatever you want in life. If you help other people. Get. They want in life. Right. That's the most interesting. That's the most important thing. There. You get whatever you want in life. Uh, you can you can have everything in life you want if you just help others get what you want. Uh, that's not. That's not the quote. I think you get whatever in life. One, if you just, oh yeah, that's a Zig Ziglar quote. That's the quote, Zig Ziglar. So Zig Ziglar says, you can you can get everything in life you want if you will just help enough other people get what they want in life. So he recognized one thing in a sense as to whatever it is that you're selling, you got you have to tie your goals and your visions with somebody else's goals and dreams, right? Let's think about it this way: you have to tie your goals and dreams with somebody else's goals and dreams, right? So in a sense, as we think about it, he wanted to be rich. Most people wanted the gold, right? They wanted the gold because they knew they could go sell the gold and based off the gold, they could go ahead and make more money. You gotta understand back then, people weren't really trading in currency. There was not like a lot of, US dollar existed, but there wasn't, I think it existed. So I'm very curious, when was the US dollar incepted? In, in when was the US dollar created? Um, it was created, yeah, it was created in 1792. So yeah, the, the US dollar existed back then, but the US dollar was still on, um, we were still pretty much on the gold standard because I think, I don't believe we we're taking off the gold standard until 19, I think it was 1976. Um, I think it was it was 1976, if I'm not mistaken. Let me see that number here, it was, if it was uh, uh, 1971, I was wrong. 1971 was when the US dollar was taken off the gold standard. I had to actually go look that up. Since 1971 was when the US dollar was taken off the gold standard, but until then, from 1791, I believe, to uh, 1790 something to 1971, for almost 200 years, the US dollar pretty much was uh, um, pretty much um, existed for the most part. So 
if the U.S. dollar was basically still on a gold standard, the U.S. dollar was still pretty much in a point at which people still respected it. That means if you had the, to explain to you how the gold standard works was I want you to think about it from a perspective. I don't have any cash with me right now. Let me see if I do. I don't have any cash on me. But imagine if I say, you know, this piece of paper. Right. So imagine I say this piece of paper right here is. Um, you give me gold, which is how the bank works, right? You give me gold, and I will store your gold. And in exchange for that, I will give you a piece of paper saying that with so-and-so bank, you have a valuation of $200 worth of gold, right? We valued your gold at $200, so this is your this is your cash signifying that, right? So you take that, and you could use that promissory note, or you could break it apart, and people would give you a change or whatever it is, and you could use that as a way of trading, right? So just imagine that you pretty much could just use that gold to say, hey, you know what? I want to trade this. I want to go ahead and trade this. I want to go ahead and do that. So that's pretty much what you could do there. You had that, you had the, the promissory note. Now the banks, which I'm not, I'm kind of getting off topic here, but how the banks make money is basically the banks say, okay, you basically give us this. We're going to use a fractional reserve banking. Fractional reserve means they cut it in half or cut it by 90%, which I don't think even the fractional reserve banking, if you ask me right now, still holds 10%. But all they required by law is they're just required to keep 10% of it, but they can loan out nine the nine 90% of it back. So if you give them a thousand bucks, they can loan out 900 and then they can loan out 900 at, Four percent, six percent, or some places would do a predatory loan, and they'll do a high interest loan of twenty something percent, and they wouldn't give those loans out to other people. Basically, the reason why they're giving those loans out is they're giving the loans out to people to basically say, "Hey, you know what, guys? Um, you give them the money, loan the money out. Somebody else uses the money, deposits more, and then this way they can just keep money out that was never theirs, but they could just loan out certificates, right? So they would just could just loan out certificates. So what the banks started doing was doing that, and the fractional reserve banking pretty much was created. But that is pretty much off topic of what I really wanted to do. The premise of this, right? The premise of things I wanted to talk about was one: the ability for you to you must understand that the ability for you to get attention is important. The Understand the ability for you to understand the value and put in the location, which means location determines the perception, right? So if for instance, if you are, how would I put it? If you if you are location can be translated into multiple things, right? People translate, like for instance, if you are, let's say you drive a Honda Accord, which I drive a Honda, I love my car, right? You'll see you drive a Honda, people go, okay, you drive a Honda. They perceive you not as a higher status based off the car you drive. Doesn't matter what's in your bank account, they perceive based off what they see. But if you if you drive a Lamborghini, you could be the brokest person on the planet. But else they go, wow, this person is rich because that's basically off of the perception, right? That's why human beings buy based off of perception. And as much as we'd like to say that we're complicated, the human mind is very simple. It's a very simple um how would I put it? It's a very simple, simple mind because the human mind functions very much off of, you know, off of perception, which perception influences our uh, emotions basically. And everything pretty much people do is pretty much emotional. As logical as you could say it is, you could be like, oh, I don't like, like, I don't like, you know, signing up for stuff. I don't like doing this. Maybe it's because based off the past, somebody took your money five years ago and then I hurt your feelings. So now you have a strong emotion against purchase on the internet. You could be a point in which I don't, you know, I don't like speeding. I don't like doing this. I don't like doing that. It could just be based off of perceptions that you've had in the past that has influenced your current decision. Your decision in some way, shape, or form is influenced by the emotional feelings that you have towards whatever it is that happened, right? That's kind of the thing to keep in mind there. So we're all pretty much emotional, right? That's where perception pretty much comes into play. Your ability to control your the way other people perceive you will pretty much determine a lot about the outcomes that you get in life. I'm going to say that's very important is be able to control perception, control attention, location, and perception. People's perception 
perception of you is very, very important, right? Like for instance, if I'm going to be in a, in a front of somebody selling a business when I'm doing a business presentation, selling an index universal life insurance, or I'm selling life insurance in whatever way, shape or form, I'm not going to be dressed like this. I mean, I'm on a podcast right now, chit chit chatting, and I'm relaxing because you guys are like, well, he's on a podcast. This is not a, this is not a, you know, an IUL podcast. It's just me just basically having a conversation with you guys. But you know, I could be literally if I wanted to sell something that was I knew the the audience that I was selling to ought to be in a nice three piece suit, right? Then it's like, oh, okay, good. He's in a suit, you know, because instantly it just changes the way that people see what it is that you do, right? It just changes the way people see what you do. And then also I gotta understand another thing is you gotta factor into your businesses. Social proof plays a role. Imagine we have two restaurants, or I'm gonna say two restaurants. So you have restaurant one and you have restaurant two. Restaurant one, absolutely empty. They they have a sign, they have a sign saying. 15 second wait for your food, which means you get in fast, easy, and done, right? 15 seconds. There's people that are going to go there. It's like 15 seconds. That's restaurant one. And then you have restaurant two. Restaurant two says we have five-hour waiting line, and you can see the line. Literally, the line is out to two blocks down. But guess what ends up happening? People still, you still have 70% of people still go join the line with a longer wait period because at the end of the day, is that social proof. So people go, if 50 people, 60 people are willing to wait five hours for this food, then I don't want to miss out. So that's where you get pretty much FOMO. That's where you get the, the fear of missing out is now pretty much not a, you know, there is no fear of missing out. There's a fear of missing out. So you're like, you know what? I'm going to actually stay and I'm actually going to watch. I'm going to, I'm going to stand in line to get this, this food. It's the same thing with Apple. Apple for the most part has a huge social proof. Like people will be like, uh, you know, there's, there's people that will be like, you know, I, they get a weird feeling when they get a green text message. You're like, why is it that when I text to your phone is you, the message is green. Why is it not blue? And then they'll be like, you know, and then there's this whole cult of Apple and then there's this whole Android thing. And the people are like going back and forth. It's just kind of things this human mind is very simple. And the more you understand that, the more you understand that interactive with human beings, you got to keep it on a simplistic perspective. You know, people want something. Can you help them achieve it? It's simple. Life is not complicated. You got to think about it. The, 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 another case, that another point to prove there is simplicity. Simplicity is key. Simplicity is key to everything, right? If you make things too complicated, they always say there's a complicated, confused mind will not buy. If your product is complicated, people will not buy it. Gold was simple. Shovel was simple. I take shovel. I buy shovel. Shovel goes. I dig. Boom, gold comes out pretty easy, right? It's it's when you start selling a very complex product, then you start looking at a very longer buying cycle. You start looking at people taking longer to buy and people telling you I have to think about it. And people, it's just because of the complexity. Like for instance, so one of the products that that now, because I'm I'm actually now deciding to get back into the insurance industry. So one of the products that we basically sell is it's something called an index universal life insurance, which basically index universal life insurance I've spoken about in the past, basically just indexes. Um you know, indexes, your, you have a portion of your premiums basically in the market, actually helping invest and getting you returns of 3 4%, non-guaranteed. But then you also have a portion of it going towards the cost of your insurance, you know, where you have your, you know, you have basically your cost of insurance being paid for. So in a way, you have your money basically working for you, which is also kind of in a way you can look at it as a investment account, right? So you kind of pretty much have an investment account. Now, that's that's a product that can be a one, uh, uh, um, a simple life cycle of people can explain it be like okay well this is how people explain oh you take your money put the money in your market the market goes 4.6 percent seven percent 5.8 percent 6.7 percent and here's the thing when i when i sell it i don't i don't tell people like hey you know this this can this you know you can use as an investment i'm like it, it will not be this will not more than likely you will be safe from the market but you will not beat the gains from the market right a five percent inch five percent up 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 you know um 
just a five percent interest or five percent made on a on an IUL is not going to be compared to twenty seven percent when the market is twenty seven percent market yield, right? So if you look at it from that perspective, you're like, okay, so I'm I don't sell it as a product that competes with the market. I I completely separate it. I say literally the best way to say it is like, hey, how would you like to get insurance at no cost? And they're like, what? I was like, perfect. This is how you do it. This is how you have an insurance where, you know, pretty much explain to them the whole portfolio of how it works. And I'm like, hey. After seven or 11 years, you have access to insurance policy and you only need to pretty much, we can set it up in a way when you only pay this for the next 10 years and you pay after 10 years and then that's it. That's all you do. You have insurance for the rest of your life where pretty much the interest gain now pretty much in the insurance pays for itself, right? And then like a lot of people are like, wow, okay, that's interesting. Or you can pretty much say, I want the insurance to pay for itself. Or I want to cash out from the insurance. It's up to you. But how would you like to get insurance that basically either pays for itself or pays you? Which, which, which would you prefer? You're not, you're like, pays me. What do you mean? I'm like, okay, in the next, you know, you have, let's say I'm selling to someone who is a, you know, a, a 31 year old with a kid who's six, right? I'm like, okay, good. In 10 years, what's your kid going to be? 16. What are you going to be planning for? College. Okay. So that means in 10 years, you're going to, have you started saving money for your kid's college? No. Okay, good. How about in a way which you can get insured where, and if something happens to you before they, before they go to college, they can still get their college paid for the life insurance. And also if something hap doesn't happen to you in 10 years, when they're ready for college, now your insurance pays for them. Regardless, the insurance is covering the bill. People are like, oh, it's a no brainer. How much is it? I'm like, okay, it's 300 bucks a month. If that's what you want, well, 200 bucks a month depends on whatever it is you want. They're like, okay. I'm like, how much money would they need for college? Because the thing is, is, and I know I'm kind of going into a sale and into a little sales pitch here, but, but the, 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 one of my sales perspective, and because a lot of people watch this in business and I have a lot of people that are not in business, but one of the things I tell people in sales is I don't underwrite or write products in the sense as to write in the product for the the, the perception of like this, this, this. I write it based off of if it's tailored to the customer's needs, right? It's tailored to what do you want it to do for you, okay? What is the most, what's going to be important to you in 10 or 15 years? Is it retirement or your kids, right? What's important to you? Well, it's retirement. So if it's retirement that we can't have you paying for insurance when you're retired because then it's going to be cutting into your living expenses. So all we need to do is while you're working, just have you pay for it so that once you retire, you can enjoy and you can actually be cashing out of your insurance. Okay, yeah, retirement's important. If retirement's not important and my kid's important, okay, good. Then let's make sure that in the next 15 years, your kids have enough money to be able to pay for college, right? But that's how I simple, I, I make it relatable, right? Because in the sense is to, if you start whatever product you're selling, if it doesn't matter what it is, it's like, this is what it does. Because here's the reality, and most people need, you need to think about this, is most people read and comprehend at the third to fifth grade level. I'm not saying this is like me making this up, but most people read and comprehend at a fifth grade level. You can actually go prove to go look at the studies that most people, that's why most advertising, when they advertise, they advertise in a third to fifth grade level because most people read and comprehend at a third to fifth grade level. So if most people read and comprehend at the third to fifth grade level, it doesn't matter even if they go to college, they still read and comprehend at the third to fifth grade level. So simple, just pretty much apply that and saying, hey, let me make my product. Like if, because I want to tell you something is this, is if you cannot sell, if you have a fifth grader and they, they don't understand how your product works, I'm going to say this again. If a fifth grader does not understand how your product works, then people will not buy. If you have a kid right now that's a fifth grader, you're like, hey, I'm going to try to explain to you how this works and tell me if you understand it or not. And if a fifth grader cannot understand the product, then your product will not sell. Right. If I'm selling a gym membership, oh, I help you gain muscle. I help you tone. I help you lose weight. Simple. Third grade, fifth grade. Okay, good. They understand it. Versus you're like, well, we go into this process where we do cryostasis and then we do this and then we do a sauna. And then, we, and then it's like, what's a sauna? What's cryostasis? Cryostasis? What's this? What's this? What's muscle conditioning? What's that? What's this? People, you start losing people. But when you keep it in a third or fifth grade level, like, aha, when people understand, people buy.
right? So it's kind of like the simple, the key, the key simple things that to keep in, into perspective there is keep it simple, understand perception, but also be understand to keep it simple. Very important. Keep it, keep it simple, right? So one of the few things in which I want to talk about is, is a common mistakes that most business owners are making. If you're making this mistake, honestly, see how you can fix it and actually see how you can structure it now in which, you know, in the next you know, so you can be able to the next, you know, because we're now most businesses already in Q3. So now they pretty much start in Q4. So pretty much Q4, I believe, starts this month. Yeah. So most people are pretty much going to be concluding Q4. So this is where most businesses are like, how do I either maximize profits or reduce my tax liability? Right. Because that's usually what most people are doing because it's the end of year season. So common mistakes most businesses make is you got to understand that you are whatever space. If you're struggling to sell or you notice that, you know, whatever you sell, somebody else down the street can make it then in a way you're in a red ocean. Like for instance, I always tell people, don't start a podcast. Most people think I don't do the podcast for money. I don't collect, I have not collected a single dime or a single dollar from the podcast. I don't do the podcast for money, which is probably a misconception because a lot of people go to interact with like, oh man, you must be the rich guy on the podcast. I don't do the podcast for money. This is not a this is not a money thing for me. This is something where, in a sense, is to I realize I have a few thousand people that listen to me on a monthly basis and they enjoy listening to me. So they engage with my content because if they didn't enjoy listening to me, they wouldn't watch it. So I was like, hey, you know what? I will put the free content out there. I don't ask a single dollar from you. You can watch it or you cannot watch it. So that's pretty much kind of the way I look at it, right? So from that perspective of I look at it from that perspective and I'm like, all right, so I'm going to go ahead and put, put, put out free content. But the reality is this, there's 500 million cha your YouTube channels out there. There's probably hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there. You know, Spotify is saturated. Everything is saturated. So you're just another podcast. If you're going to start a podcast, when you got to understand, I look at the podcast game and I'm like, the podcast game is a saturated, it's a saturated niche. This is not in any way a career. This is something I just enjoy doing. This is something I personally just it's a passion, but most passions don't pay you anything. That's kind of how you want to think about it. So I look at it as something which is fun. So, but you got to understand if I initially, that's the reason why I do the insurance thing. Most people know that's the reason why I do the insurance thing because that's where the money is. And, and, and I'm, very brutally honest. If I'm helping somebody, I will get paid for it. That's basically what insurance is. It's the same way. If you're doing your job and you help your boss and you help your company move up, then you get compensated for it. That's how life is. And I believe in fair and equal compensation. That's pretty much how life is. So if you look at it from that perspective there, if you look at it from that perspective there, I want you to think about it from a perspective of you in a red ocean. So in a red ocean, the sense is to, if somebody else, Joe Schmo down the street can make a copy of your product, if someone in China can make a copy of your product, if someone in India can make a copy of your product, if someone in another country can make a copy of your product, but they can do it for cheaper, they can do it for less, then in reality, you don't necessarily have a product that is, I would say, viable for the most part. Uh, you're on a red ocean because it's easy for and someone, someone can become a competition overnight. All they need to do is learn a little bit about the industry and they can become a competition overnight. And most businesses are in a red ocean. And I want you to look at it from a perspective. Sam Brennan was not in a red ocean. How many people did you know were selling shovels? For him to be making five grand, which is equivalent of $120,000 to $148,000 on a daily basis back in 1849 to 1852, if he could make this hundreds of thousands of dollars, you got to understand that the dude had no competition because if he had competition down the street and they were selling it for $12, you know, $15, $10, yeah, maybe, but the dude had no competition. So that's kind of the way you got to look at it from that perspective of you need to look at it from that perspective of how can I be in a market in which no one else is doing what it is I'm doing? You have to, now there's pros and cons being a red in a blue ocean. And I recommend you, you guys read the, the book, the blue ocean strategy, but if you read in the blue and, and I really, really did enjoy that book. Um, I have it on audible. I have it on Kindle as well. Uh, but the one of the key things it talks about in the blue ocean is when you're in a blue ocean, you kind of when, when you're in a red ocean, it's just blooded. It's just like a shock to the water. Right. 
you know, everyone is competing for the same client. It's kind of like the same thing as the insurance industry. Insurance industry is a red ocean, especially if you're dueling, selling anything like a final expense product or those kind of products, you're dealing with a red ocean. If you are more in a blue ocean, you got to do something that is difficult for people to get into. The reason why I chose the specific financial industry, financial products is because most people aren't willing to take the time to study the market. Most people aren't willing to take the time to study how interest rates work. Most people aren't willing to study, to take the time to study what they actually invest in now to build a policy for the clients. Most people aren't willing to spend the time to, to do that or learn or, or basically study that. So then again, it's a blue ocean. We had a virtual assistant company, which Ryzen results a virtual assistant. And now we're also branching because I want to keep the Ryzen brand. I really love the name. The goal is to keep the Ryzen brand and kind of scale into, you know, I have a few other things uh, in, in the works, God willing, by the grace of God, be able to get everything else pretty much uh, put into works. Um, but yeah, so we had the virtual assistant agency, which a virtual assistant agency, we were pretty much in the red ocean. Anyone and everyone could start a pretty much a, uh, a virtual assistant service. So what I do, I sold it. And I was like, hey, this is this is a red ocean. Okay, this is a red ocean. And it's it was a red ocean. Was it a good decision for me at the time? I don't know. Was it a bad decision for me? I don't know. At the end of the day, I just knew that in a competitive market, when you want to be competitive, you want to have something that was in a way unique. I mean, it doesn't matter if it, it could be in demand, but you got to make sure you have something that is pretty much unique. Okay. So, and if you go ahead and you go ahead, next thing you want to find a way to charge more for your product and pick an audience that will pay more. So the way you can charge more for your product is basically think about it from a perspective of your positioning, right? Where are you basically positioning yourself? Where is the positioning, right? Where are you positioning yourself, right? So in a sense, it's the same thing as a shovel. The shovel in California was selling for 36 bucks, which is an equivalent of $1,429. But that same shovel in um in new york would probably send for itself for like a couple cents right so it was all about the location you're in so if you want to be able to be valued more remember i said this earlier you got to be in a position in which your location actually matters you got actually got to be in a position in which location is key oh, so you got to also you also understand that you probably just need to sell something that is also pricey right you got to sell something expensive i'm a big believer in high ticket sales my big belief is because there's people like for instance there's high ticket sales and low ticket sales, right? So high ticket sales is anything where you're selling. Most people consider anything over $400, $800 is high ticket sales. I usually like to go for something over two grand is something I'll consider high ticket sales. Well, most people do a low ticket sales where they're selling things for like 20, 30, 40, 50 bucks, but if you're selling it on a tight margin where it probably costs them $5 to make it, you know, and then they sell it for $10 and sell it for $15. Now, the concept here is for you to make you know, profit off of this, you need to be basically in a position which you're probably selling. Um, what's the word I would say? You need to sell maybe a thousand, you know, to make 10 grand. You need to sell a hundred versus if you sold a product that was selling for 2000, you need less customers. So the, the, the hassle to it is, is you got to look at it from a perspective of, are you in a high volume? Because the thing is this, most people don't understand for a low ticket item, which is items that sell for less than 20, 30, 50, hundred bucks to survive. You need scale. That's the reason why subscription model, right? Like for instance, right? We had a, we still do uh, the software side of things where imagine you sold your software for a hundred bucks a month, right? Now for your soft, because everyone knows you might sell for a hundred bucks a month, but it costs you maybe 10, 15 grand to run it. But for you to actually have a software that is actually fully running, you need to be selling, you know, you need to, if it costs you 10 grand and you need to be selling a hundred bucks a month, you need to be selling about, you know, another hundred to pretty much be making your 10 grand. The reason being is low ticket items for them to survive, the low ticket items to be viable, you need to sell it at scale. Low ticket items succeed with scale. Lower ticket item or higher ticket items, you don't need to sell. You actually don't even want to sell to everybody. You want to be very, very, almost like very, very niche, niche down and focus a few people. Like I sell IULs. I don't sell IULs to everybody. 
I'm not selling IULs to everybody. I'm not. I sell IULs to strictly business owners. Okay. It's a simple business thing. I sell to business owners. Reason being is because business owners, for the most part, see the viability. They see the tax incentives. They see everything that pretty much goes into like an index universal life policy. So I don't sell that to like someone who is in a W-2 because they're like, hey, I have my 401k. I'm like, okay, that's fine. Like, hey, I have my IRA. That's fine. That's fine. I'm not trying to compete or have you move money from your 401k to IRA. The goal here is we're looking at a few other things, right? So it's kind of like you got to pick a niche. That's the thing is I don't pick a niche where I'm like, oh my God, I want to sell to thousands of people. No, I just want to sell to strictly business owners, right? Because I know it's a smaller demographic. It's a smaller target market and I can just niche down. And one, another thing I don't like is I don't like my phone ringing 247. I just want people, if it's ringing, if I have a hundred customers, and 20% of them are calling me, that's 20 phone calls. Versus if I have 10,000 customers and I have 20% of calling me, now I'm looking at basically 2,000 phone calls, right? Got to look at it from that perspective of so you can niche down and kind of narrow down and only sell to a smaller group. You don't need everybody. You just need a few. Also, you got to think about it also. Find a way to be the gold mine and the shovel seller. So if, it, if it's possible for you to be the one that has a gold mine and also shell. So basically, you have the opportunity and you sell basically the, the way for people to you know, make the opportunity and that's pretty much insane. So in a way to look at it, in a sense is to people want to make money. Most people get into insurance and sell insurance because they want to make money, but they never take the time to actually learn the product. If they actually learned the product and understood how the product worked, then when they actually went to sell, you would understand it's just a transference of belief. I have three insurance policies on me, right? I believe in it. My father died. And when he passed away, that was the one thing that was able to basically pay off his funeral was his insurance, right? And pay off the debt that he left behind. So I kind of understand it. I understand the value of it. That's basically the same thing. It's too so it, it's the same concept of you kind of gotta be the gold mine and also be the shuffle seller at the same time, right? So find a way to sell the opportunity and also be the one that has the opportunity. Depends on whatever your business you want to look at. So you gotta think about it. Another thing is and also most business owners don't invest enough in actually getting attention. You gotta remember one thing that Sam Brennan did at the beginning, he went and he actually told people and said, Hey, listen, guys, there's gold. That's how he started. He's like, Hey guys, listen, there's gold. And when people are like, Oh my god, there's gold, we can go get gold. That's pretty much how everything pretty much all started. There was like, Hey, this gold. Everyone is like, all right, there's gold. So if there's gold, one of the things that we want to do is basically let's go get the gold. So he had the ability to get attention. Now, I don't know about you or whatever it is that your business is, but you got to have that ability to get attention because remember, attention is currency. So and what I kind of found out here is I basically was doing research and I found out that most business owners don't actually spend that much money in advertising. Most business owners, only about 26% of business owners actually, this is a this is a this is an article that was done by um tomorrow's media basically they just did an article of uh i wouldn't say an article but it's more of like a case study on basically how much advertisers and businesses were were spending so if we kind of come ahead and, and and let's see let's see this here so basically uh, 74 percent of uh, use traditional digital advertising in 2016 so 2016 data 22 percent use traditional advertising only so this is just basically tracking the advertising that most businesses did so yeah 76 percent using small you know doing advertising now another thing that was interesting here is so while 76 percent of respondents are using some type of digital advertising 76 percent only 26 percent of dollars 26 percent of the dollars spent on advertising go to digital so what does that mean is basically most people aren't paying for ads they're doing like you know other promotion like you know emails or they're doing you know social media posts and groups the thing is you don't understand this the ads has an ability to give you a 500 to a 2000 percent return on your ad spend because if you're spending on ads you actually the algorithm gives you the ability to target people that are more niched focused to whatever it is that you're looking for they're more niche focused to basically anything or whatever it is that you know you you're doing so if you can basically find a way to have a target audience that's completely niched you know you have your niche 
you know exactly who it is that you that you want to sell to with paid advertising you have the ability to actually target your niche you have the ability to actually target people who are basically in your target demographic and people you actually want to sell to that's something that you kind of pretty much got to keep in mind there when it comes to the advertising space so and in conclusion conclusion of it guys basically i'm curious what you guys think about the sam brennan story but the also another thing to talk about is advertising as well is and i want to say this quote and i believe this quote was russell brunson he said whoever can spend the most to acquire a customer wins right so whoever can spend the most to acquire a customer wins so i want you to think about it from a perspective of whoever it is that can spend 10, 10, 15, 20, 25,000, where we can spend the most quiet customer wins because the way most advertising works is it works off of an auction base. So the advertising works off of an auction base. So think about it from the perspective of like there's eyeballs, right? All this Facebook, for instance, Facebook goes, we have 2 billion users, right? You want the eyeballs of my 2 billion users or 100 million, depends on your target, targeting that you want. They come to you and they go, they have 200 people willing to pay. Right, one person spending ten bucks a day, another person spending fifteen bucks a day, another person twenty, and then you come and you're like, "Hell, you spend a thousand bucks a day." They're like, "Well, you're like you're willing to pay whatever it takes, cost per impression, which is cost per thousand thousand um uh, thousand people to see it," and you're like, "I'm willing to pay as much as possible." Now you basically get ranked more, and you raise the bid. So now you raise the bid by you entering the market, and if other people can't compete to beat your bid. You basically now everybody gets to see your ad until somebody else comes raise your budget and say they're willing to pay more. Now they now get to become the person sending the new system. Everything that's where advertising works is works off of a bidding system. So you gotta understand whoever's willing to spend the most money wins. Sam Brennan didn't have to do advertising because advertising wasn't really a big thing back then. But you might have to do that. Attention is currency. If you want to grow your business, that is something that's important. Now, uh, that's pretty much what I have for you guys. Like I said, if you got value from this video, do me a favor, share the video, and also check out. There's a few videos that might be somewhere else in the channel. Take a look at the videos, and if anything, like. Don't forget to like the video. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel, and um, share the video as well. And thanks again for you guys watching.